The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Lord, we come to worship with open hearts and pray that you would fill them. And may we leave this place with great joy in our glorious Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for many of you making the switch to the first hour. I appreciate that so much. I see only a couple snarling faces. But I'm sure that's because of something your wife did to you this morning. I'm just sure of it. American holidays are not biblical holidays. But woe to the church that does not embrace the culture in which it lives. The church is to assimilate into community, which means it's very appropriate for us as believers to recognize and to celebrate, to observe even these wonderful events in our own American calendar. It doesn't mean that we are worshiping our country. Far from that, all glory be to Christ. But we are thankful and we are concerned. We want to make sure that we honor those who have indeed sacrificed. That's what Memorial Day is all about. That wonderful video at the beginning of the service emphasized the fact that it is a great sacrifice, and for some, the ultimate sacrifice, so that you and I would be free today to worship. And for that, we are amazingly thankful. I grew up in the Waterford, Michigan area, and one of my good friends was Kevin Tatro. Kevin's birthday was on May 30th, and when he was a young boy, he would wake up on his birthday and see on the TV parades and thought it was all for him. His father, who was the superintendent of Waterford Schools, said to him, Kevin, know those parades, that's for Memorial Day. It's not about you. And sometimes when we come to worship our Lord, or we come even to celebrate what happens in our life, we have too much of a me focus. This is about me, instead of seeing this is about Christ. And we can take the wonderful day called Memorial Day and thank those, truly thank those who've sacrificed their lives. Many of you have sacrificed your time, sacrificed part of your life, and you know family and friends who sacrificed their total life. We truly say thank you. But all glory be to Christ who made the ultimate sacrifice to set us free. And that's the text that we come upon this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So let me encourage you to turn to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. I remember early on our president was criticized for using Bible passages and not saying 2 Timothy but saying 2 Timothy. And people criticized him very harshly, but that is a very European way of talking about the scriptures. It's 2 Timothy 2. I don't know why I said that. I guess I didn't have enough 
information for the sermon and needed to fill in <laughs> a little bit. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 20. In a large house, there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some of your translations will have the word earthenware. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Paul loves metaphor. He's given us multiple metaphors of what it is to be a Christian servant, of what it is to endure as a believer and follow God. Here now he is emphasizing this idea, this metaphor, this picture of a house. And he calls it a large house. I never knew that the hours spent watching Downton Abbey would help me understand my Bible. But what you have here is a large estate with the upstairs rich people and the downstairs servants, at least in part. It may be like your house, though. Do you have gold and silver vessels? The word articles in the NIV is also translated utensils or instruments. It's what you use in serving or in functioning in the household. And some of your um, dishes, pots and pans, utensils are the best, the very best. It's the china you bring out for special purposes. It's the expensive stuff. And then you have the paper plates. You have the wooden back in that day or the clay, the common Use, the menial use. That's for the downstairs servants. So that's the picture that Paul gives. And then he takes this idea of vessel. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes. I think it would have been more helpful for them to translate the English word the same as they did in verse 20, for articles in verse 20 is the same Greek word for instruments in verse 21. It's the utensils, the vessels. So those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes. They'll be the gold and silver. In other words, in God's house, there are those who work in areas of special service to the master and those who work in very menial things for the master. And we are to cleanse ourselves so we can be the best of vessels. Now, I'll remind you of the context. This is the Apostle Paul in prison writing to Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus. And the immediate application really is to those individuals who are serving the Lord and preaching the word in churches and missionaries and, and Christian workers and maybe even in Sunday school classes. But it comes down to us at every level in being a servant. We are instruments of God and we must be cleansed. We must be clean. That's the point of verse 21. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter. What does that mean? Well, you have to go back into the context to see what latter means. And it's referring to 
the discussion of quarrels. It's, it's talking about the teaching of the false teachers. So what you need to cleanse yourself from is not only the teaching of the false teachers, but the way they teach. Back in verse 14, quarrels, war words, and the end is that they are the ruination of those who listen. Timothy, verse 15, you're to handle the truth correctly. Cut it straight. Make it clear. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter. Because their teaching, the false teachers, verse 17, works like a plague, like gangrene. Among the false teachers are Hymenaeus and Philetus. They've wandered from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Verse 20, turn away from this type of wickedness. And then he comes down to verse 21, if you cleanse yourself from these things. So it's false teaching and it's the way false teachers teach. But we are to be vessels, instruments, chosen and clean in the hands of God. It is interesting that the Apostle Paul is himself called an instrument. If you go back to his conversion in Acts chapter 9, God said to Ananias, the one sent to lead Paul to Christ, to confirm him in the faith, to baptize him. The Lord said of Paul, he is my chosen instrument. My chosen vessel, my chosen utensil to do my work. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in clay pots, earthen vessels. You and I are fragile, but God's light is in us. Just like in that day, they would have little lamps of clay pots and there would be oil in it and a and a wick would be stuck in it, and that would be the little lamp that would light their way, and uh, you would discard the lamp when the oil was gone. And so we're not important, but the message is we are vessels to carry it home. So in a great house, what Paul is saying is that there are genuine, useful articles, instruments, and then there are the spurious ones. If you would take this analogy to its end, the wood and the clay are referring to the false teachers. And we are to cleanse ourselves both from their teaching and the way they teach so that we can be holy. We can be instruments, verse 21, for special purposes. We can be useful to the master. And that's the goal. In fact, that's what I've chosen as the theme of this entire study in 2 Timothy, that you and I would be useful to the master. How do we get there? We get there by a pure faith, chapter 1. And we get there by a continuing sanctification, chapter 2. We cleanse ourselves from all that is false and live with a pure heart for the glory of God. Verse 19 says, the Lord knows those who are his. That's a secret knowledge. He has the list. But everyone who, who confesses that they are a believer should depart from wickedness. That's ongoing sanctification. 
So the Lord wants us to be clean instruments and useful to the master, which implies that there are days, there are times in which we're not very useful, right? A wonderful story is going to come to us from the end of this book, this letter, 2 Timothy, and it's about a young man named John Mark. You can pick up his story in the book of Acts, chosen to be a missionary with the very first missionary team, uh, filled with promise, picked from hundreds, and then on the first missionary trip, after witnessing many miracles, he leaves, he quits, and he goes home to Jerusalem. Time for the second missionary trip to start, and John Mark says, I'd like to go, and Paul says, no way. You went AWOL on the first one. You're not worthy to be chosen. But Paul's missionary co compatriot, Barnabas, wanted to take John Mark. They happened to be related, by the way, and that probably had something to do with it. But he wanted to take John Mark, and Paul said no, and Barnabas said yes. And then they got a little louder. Paul said no, and Barnabas said yes. And then they got a little louder. Oh, that would have been fun to watch. Except it's tragic when Christians fight. And they broke up the missionary team. John Mark was not useful at that point in time in his life. But ten years later, Paul's in prison writing this letter. And if you jump to chapter 4, you'll see that Paul says, regarding John Mark, bring him with you. For he is profitable, he is useful to me and to the ministry. And that is an amazing change of heart that Paul has regarding John. This is verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you uh, when I come. I need him. And he indeed is profitable to me. So the same word useful is used in regards with John Mark. Here in the Living Bible, it's translated, I need him. He is useful. He's profitable. So we must be clean. We must be pure. That's God's call upon our life. That's the call. And it involves two things. It involves a fleeing and a pursuing. It's like double duty. We are to flee the evil desires of youth. So now I'm down to verse 22. If we're going to be useful in the master's hand, we've got to both flee and pursue. Now right away when we think of the evil desires of youth, we often, our mind immediately goes to immorality or sexual impurity, and that may be part of it. But in the context, it fits more along the lines of arrogance, bullheadedness, self-sufficiency. <laughs> Those are the things that are so clearly with the young. The idea that they can do it along, these wayward impulses of youth and sometimes we don't flee those as we should and they stick with us all throughout our life by the way this word flee shows the idea that the wickedness 
is dangerous to our soul. This wickedness, if not repented of, could lead us astray and ruin our lives, as we saw in verse 14. So we are to run. We're not to linger in Sodom like Lot did. We are to run from Potiphar's wife like Joseph did. All stories from the book of Genesis. This is the same word that is used in Matthew 2 when Mary and Joseph took their little baby Jesus and fled to Egypt because Herod wanted to take their lives. We are to flee with urgency and follow passionately. We are to follow faith and love and peace along with all of those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So we're to leave the false teachers and their ways and to join ourselves to the company of the pure in heart. The company of the pure in heart. Where are they? They should be right here today. The people who gather together as a believing church and desire their hearts to be cleansed by the blood of Christ and purely devoted to Jesus Christ. This is a theme that Paul brings up again and again. Uh, his first letter to Timothy mentions it in chapter 1. We are to love God with a pure heart. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm convinced you have a pure, genuine faith, Timothy. And now he's saying the same thing again. Flee the evil and follow the right with a pure heart. We're not very good at running away from spiritual danger. We have a tendency to play with it, to linger and negotiate. But God says, run. It's because you and I, in the midst of strong temptation, easily cave and can ruin a lifetime of work. We must pursue God with everything we have. Double duty. John Stott says, it is, the re it is the ruthless rejection of the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other. So as, as Christians in this thing called sanctification, you have double duty. I have double duty. We have to put off the old and what? Put on the new. We have to die to self and what? Live for Christ. We have to flee and we have to follow. And sanctification involves them both. Let the message get deep down into our soul because our goal is to be useful to the master, and there is no higher honor that we could ever imagine that, than that Jesus Christ would want us in his hand to do his work. True of pastors, but also true of all God's people, because God wants you to do his work wherever he's placed you. So that's the first image we have in this section of Scripture. But there's one more as Paul ends what we find in our Bibles, the end of the chapter. And the second image is that we need to be servants. Look at verse 23. Now he brings up the idea of the foolish, stupid arguments of 
the false teachers. I laugh because in the NIV, they have the word stupid arguments. My wife used to tell our girls, don't use the word stupid. And then I would come in the pulpit and say, stupid. And she would spend the next week trying to explain. But they are stupid arguments. They have no good purpose, these quarrels of the false teachers. They're foolish because they're not based on the wisdom of the word. So don't have anything to do with those. We have a tendency to get into these arguments and debate with people, and we want to show our mental prowess by winning the argument. Paul says, Timothy, stop doing that. Because you know they produce quarrels, fights, and the Lord's servant, here's the second image, servant. Skuas was the instrument, doulos is the servant. Almost a play on words in the original language. You go from being inanimate, a spoon, to now being a servant, the butler. We should have entitled the sermon, The Spoon and the Butler. Because these are the pictures that God is giving to us of those who faithfully serve him. What is a servant? Well, the servant doesn't quarrel. A good servant doesn't. And the Lord's servant shouldn't quarrel either, but must be kind. So as, as an instrument, we must be clean. As a servant, we must be kind. George W. Truett used to say, be kind to everyone because everyone's having a rough time. So you're taking back that thing you purchased that doesn't work. And the policy is that you need a receipt. Or you were supposed to bring it back in the first 30 days. And the poor clerk who's getting paid $6 an hour receives your full wrath. And then they say to you something like this, I think I know you. Don't we go to the same church? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the way we run. Quarrels. Probably about speculations, things that may happen or may not happen, and controversies that people are involved with. We've already noticed that this is a familiar theme in chapter 2 with the word quarrels being mentioned in verse 14 and 16 and the concept in verse 17 as well. False teachers take pleasure in arguments that breed quarrels. There's a preoccupation with myths and endless genealogies and numbers and heated controversies and all of these things on the peripheral. Instead of getting back to the core, where the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. It's a combination of biblical speculation beyond the text of Scripture and uncharitable polemics. The debating scene among Christians is often extremely sad. Now, as we're going to see in the text, Paul's not against Timothy having a conversation about what is true and what isn't, but it's the way it's done. And if the false teachers are known by quarrels 
and breeding controversy, then you should be known as kind and gentle because you're a servant. You're the Lord's servant. And they must not be quarrelsome. Pastors have a tendency in leading churches, and especially if they're large churches, to begin to think that what's happening is really because they're so intelligent, they're so gifted, and they have a tendency to get very arrogant. They become tyrants, and they want their way. After all, they walk with God, and who should ever question what they want? We see this all across our land, especially in North America. And it's the exact opposite of what Paul said. The servant of the Lord must not be arrogant, quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not bitter, not resentful. I know of a pastor right now who pastored a very large church who was forced by his leaders to step down because he was quarrelsome and arrogant. And the word that is coming out now is that he's going to try to take the church for everything he can. <laughs> I mean, if it wouldn't be so tragic, it's funny. Don't be resentful. Don't be bitter. But look what it's... Look what is at stake. It's the souls of people. Our goal is to help others escape the control of the devil. Listen to this. Opponents must be gentle or uh, opponents must be gently instructed. That is, those who oppose you, those who oppose the gospel, the way you win them over is not to get in their face, but to gently instruct them in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. What an amazing passage for evangelism. How do you do evangelism? Like Jesus did, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Look at the demeanor of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. You, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you shall find Rest. If the master is meek and lowly, so should the servants be. It was said of Jesus in the prophet, from the prophet Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not put out. That's a gentle servant. When people rose up in opposition, he did not resist, did not retaliate. He was bearing the ill temper of people, patient with their foolishness, tolerant of their selfishness, not approving, but kind. And I believe that many Christians in many places are known by unbelievers as being arrogant and dogmatic and unreasonable. 
wow, how did we get so far off? doesn't mean you don't stand up for truth. It means you stand up for truth like Jesus did, with passion and love. Now, did you notice that you are gently instructing, verse 25, those who are in opposition, in the hope that God will grant them repentance. Repentance here is described as a gift from the Lord, that the Lord may grant them a change of heart, that he will illuminate their minds to understand the truth, and he will liberate their soul from the power of the devil. Unbelievers are not the enemy. The enemy is Satan. Unbelievers are held by the power of the devil and are captive by him, captured alive, to do his will. Satan is a warlord. And he grabs people wherever he can. And then he inebriates them. It's very interesting in this text when it talks about people coming to their senses, verse 26, it refers to getting sober. So the devil not only captures our loved ones and friends, but he drugs them with lies. And when you talk to them, you can tell they, they don't have any common sense. Bless their hearts. And it's our compassion. Remember this, you used to be where they are. Do, do you remember that, by the way? You used to be where they are. And love them into the kingdom, as Jesus did, in gentleness and mercy. With the hope that as you share the gospel kindly, God will work in their soul to grant them repentance. You see, evangelism is God's work in the heart. You can't change a heart, but you can lovingly share the gospel and pray for God to change the heart. By the way, it is interesting that when you come to repentance, then the knowledge of the truth comes Everyone knows that our belief will change our behavior, but did you know that your behavior could change your belief? That you could open up your mind by not sinning like you once did? So Jesus comes and sacrifices himself so that people can be free. Notice the context is escaping, being set free from the trap of the devil who's got the world captive to do his will. And we do that by sacrifice, by becoming a servant. I really enjoy watching the documentaries of Ken Burns. Have you seen any of those on public broadcasting television? He did one on baseball, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and then another one on the Civil War, which was fascinating, and I loved it. And he did one on Vietnam, and I cannot for the life of me watch it because it's too close. Watching the Civil War is like Another world. Watching Vietnam. It's kind of my era. 
I was a little young and went off to college and had a deferment and then became a Bible student working for the ministry and had a ministerial deferment. And by the time I graduated in 1975 from Bible college, they stopped the draft. But many of my friends went. A man that I've come to know by the name of George Bose. He was from the West Coast, 17, became a Marine to get away from the horrors of his own home. And they picked him up with other Marines and sat him down in the middle of Cambodia, I think it was. It was one of the hottest places of the war in the middle 60s. And he and about 30, 35 Marines were a platoon and they were put down there and I think only seven of them survived. George was blown up, his body thrown yards away. After that skirmish ended, they came around picking up the American bodies and they pulled George, his lifeless body, and put it in a pile with the others. They were going to give them some type of decent burial and then George groaned. And they found out he was still alive. I got to know George's story because it was put in a book. But I got to know George's story because he married my sister. And he has two purple hearts and shouldn't be alive. And I look at him and I see sacrifice. Now, he doesn't see it quite the same way. But that's what many people did so you and I could be free. Now, you want to talk about sacrifice? Look at the cross. That's what God did to save you and free you from the power of the devil. And if the Son makes you free, you're really free. So that's what God wants us to be. The butler and the spoon. For the glory of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to talk about purity and it's easy to talk about gentleness. To talk about being clean and to talk about being kind, it's far harder to do it. I pray, Lord, that you will make us all servants of Jesus Christ who understand that there's an opportunity for us to be useful to the Master and to have the privilege of holding out hope to those who are incarcerated by the devil's power and senseless at this moment until you change their heart. Oh, Lord, give us the wonderful opportunity to sacrifice our freedom for the freedom of others and for the glory of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.